All right, we're going we're gonna to be discussing tonight the actual fulfillment of, what, of the judgment that God has pronounced on Eli and his sons. And it's going to involve the Ark of the Covenant. Now, we'll have more to say about the Ark of the Covenant in subsequent lessons here. But as just a reminder, this is a nice artist rendition of what it may have looked like with the cherubim at the top, their faces and, and hands or their, their uh, faces covered with their wings. Um, anybody remember what was inside the Ark of the Covenant? Anybody remember off the top of your head? The Ten Commandments. That's good. Two more. Manna. The budding more. Aaron's staff. The, the budding Aaron's staff with the flowers. I don't know if the flowers lasted once they were put in the Ark of the Covenant. Maybe they probably did. Um, but all of that was a reminder of God's power and provision. And, of course, um, God's presence, he said, was um, in, in the top uh, between the cherubim was considered where the presence of God was. And that was, of course, put in the tabernacle in the Holy of Holies. Do you remember where our last few lessons, where this most likely was located? Well, we're going to find out tonight. It was located. What? Um, town it was located in at this point in our narrative it wasn't jerusalem shiloh that's very important because it's going to go out from shiloh and it's going to have um very troubling consequences for the nation as a whole so just a picture of that and then this map i don't know if you can see this or not um for our folks that are watching on zoom here is shiloh here and they are going to go to battle here just a few minutes in this area called Ebenezer and Aphek. We're going to see all about this in this narrative. And then the Philistines are going to carry their prize down to Ashdod. So for our folks watching here, hold on. Here's Shiloh. Notice Jerusalem or Jebus or what will be eventually Jerusalem is all the way down here. Bethel, Shiloh is here. When the war start, when the battle starts, the Israelites are going to go here um, and meet the Philistines, and the Philistines will eventually carry their prize all the way to Ashdod. And then remember Gath and Ekron. Those are important cities in this narrative as well. We probably won't get that far tonight, but just so you have a picture there. Jerusalem here, Shiloh is the main worship center where the Ark of the Covenant resides. And that's going to end up on the battlefield with very damaging results for Israel. Okay, so with that in mind, I'm going to turn this off for our folks so I can go back to my to my pulpit. All right. I always like a good map when we're talking about things like this so that everyone can see that. And actually, I'm going to leave that up for our folks. Is it still showing up there for the folks at home? Okay, great. That'll help them along. All right. Last time uh, we were in our narrative, which was... 1 Samuel 4, or actually 3, and we were talking about um, Samuel's vision that God gave him, uh, waking up Eli in the middle of the night, Eli being 
Um, he's portrayed as physically weak, but also spiritually weak as well. Um, but he eventually realizes that God is trying to communicate with, with Samuel. Then God gives Samuel that message of judgment for Eli. Eli um, presses him to give him that. And he gives him the awful news that Eli's line, as far as the priesthood, is going to diminish quickly. It will be pretty much irrelevant very soon. And as a sign of that, he will also lose his two sons because, again, of their lack of honor for God and God's things. They, as the priests, were supposed to be teaching the rest of the people as the spiritual leaders of Israel about honoring God. And they were some of the worst offenders in doing that. And Eli would not stop. He, he would not correct the situation. And furthermore, it seems to have evidence that he actually joined in with his sons and eating of the meat that they would take from the people um, in a disrespectful way. So he was a part of this as well. And um, he receives all of this. Samuel, maybe his most difficult assignment at an early age, probably 12 at the most, having to tell this older man who's almost 90 years old that his sons are going to die and that he's going to diminish an influence. And he does that. And the whole narrative as well. Now, I'm careful. I want to be careful about something with Old Testament narratives. There is a wrong way to preach and teach where, you, where some preachers see so much symbolism that they come up with things, you know, and about the life of, of Abraham and things about Moses, where they symbolize what this means and, and what this means when Abraham did this. That, that used to be a popular way to preach, but there wasn't actually any indication in the Old Testament that the, that symbolism was there. You have to be very careful about seeing symbolism that actually isn't there. Sometimes we, as even as pastors, as teachers, can get so excited and a little too creative and seeing things that the text never actually meant for us to see. So I want to be careful with that. But it does seem like this whole picture that we're talking about, there is some symbolism here. Remember Samuel, um, now in charge of that one light in the Holy of Holies in this, this temple area, um, that he is in charge of keeping lit all night long because Eli is no longer able to do that. It does seem to be kind of a symbol of Samuel as a light in the darkness of his culture. And then also his alertness to what God has to say and Eli's lack of alertness, even though, again, it's hard when you get woken up in the middle of the night to really be alert too quickly. There does seem to be that picture there. And then the next day, as it portrays verse 15, Samuel goes before the entryway of this temple structure and opens the doors of the house of the Lord. There does seem to be a symbolism as well of this young man now starting a new chapter, opening up the doors to a new chapter in Israel's history. What we're going to talk about next in all of that in relation to God's word and the narrative highlighting Samuel's faithfulness, even as a young person. Now in this chapter, we're going to get into the judgment that God has promised Eli and his family. And we're going to see the diminishing, the highlighting, the 
honoring of Samuel and the diminishing of Eli and his sons. And really kind of, this is kind of a close, even though we're out of the book of Judges, this is kind of like a close, the final chapter, the closing of the era of the Judges. And it's like, God is punishing Eli's sons, but really he's punishing all of Israel for all of this era of the judges, for them doing their own thing and going their own way. And here we really see the results of what happens when God's people, whether it's Israel or God's people today, when they constantly choose to go their own way and they make, this is important because this is in the very Hebrew, the meaning of the Hebrew, they make light things that God says should be important to us. And worship is one of those things, certainly. And obedience to God. And because Israel had made light of their relationship with God for so many years, certainly Eli's sons have done that. They are in a really a dramatic, horrible way going to face judgment with that. And we're going to see Samuel's a testimony, even in the midst of this tragedy that befalls Israel. And it is a great tragedy for God's people. So 1 Samuel chapter 4 and verse 1. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. And that basically shows this, this is kind of, at this point we have Samuel going from a 12-year-old, really accelerating. Now he's probably a young man. He is recognized as the, the new spiritual leader of Israel. The word of Samuel came to all Israel. His word, his, his teaching, his life, is representative of the fact that he is a messenger of God, that he was sent of God. And all of Israel are taking note of this and affirming Samuel is our new leader. It's really kind of what encapsulates that whole verse. The idea of Samuel's teaching and the respect to him, all of Israel in a way that has, and again, we said this before, that hasn't happened really since Moses. Now Samuel is gaining this respect. In the midst of all that, we have this story. Now Israel went out against the Philistines to battle and pitched or encamped beside Ebenezer. And the Philistines pitched in Aphek. Remember I showed you on the screen. Those of you that are still on Zoom, you can see the map here. Aphek is where the Philistines are encamped. Ebenezer in this area is where the Israelites are encamped. The Philistines. Let's just say a few things about them. They were a pagan people dwelling on the coast in southwest Israel. If those of you that have maps in your Bible that are with us tonight, you can look. For those of you on Zoom, you see this Philistia here. This is where they lived, and uh, where they resided. The Philistines became one of Israel's more relentless enemies throughout the history of Israel, didn't it? Who was the one, by the way, that finally um, wiped out, in a sense, the Philistines as a major threat? to God's people. Who finally did, what leader finally did that? David. Yep, David would be the one, and we'll see that later on. Until that time, they have constantly been a thorn in the side of Israel. Remember Samson, right? And of course, we're going to have the whole thing about Goliath here before too long. Um, they become more one, of, more one more of their relentless enemies, surviving many attempts of conquest in the book of Judges, and now they are meeting Israel for battle in the central region of the territory, as we just saw on the map. And what happens? Even without a giant, they don't have their giant yet, right? 
Philistines are still a very formidable enemy. And in this war, they win the first round, so to speak. They uh, decisively beat Israel. And so Israel, it's almost like they went into battle. uh, And maybe this was common in their thinking without thinking about God at all. And they get defeated in this first round. And then they think, oh, you know what? We need God's presence with us. Well, where do we get God's presence? Well, the Ark of the Covenant. We need, if we have the Ark of the Covenant with us, then that means, and they were treating it, we're going to see here in a minute, like kind of like a good luck charm, or as if they were the ones that ultimately could move God around wherever they wanted him to be moved, even though in their hearts, they really weren't worshiping and following after God at all. So he was kind of like the Ark of the Covenant was this good luck charm, and they think to themselves, oh, we need our good luck charm in order to win the day. Why didn't we think of that before? So let's look at this, continuing here. Verse 2, and the Philistines put themselves in array. That means they drew up in a line against Israel. And when they joined battle, Israel was defeated before the Philistines. And they slew of the army in the field of battle about 4,000 men. That's a tough round to lose. That's a lot of men to lose. And so like I said before, Israel gets back. They regroup, verse 3. And when the people were coming to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Wherefore has the Lord smitten us today before the Philistines? Why has God allowed this? Oh, we don't have the Ark of the Covenant with us. So let us fetch or bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of Shiloh unto us. When it cometh among us, it it may, almost sounds like they're not totally sure, it may Save us out of the hand or the power of our enemies. And so we here we have God's people who, as a whole, at this period of time, they aren't in their hearts really committed to God. Really, Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, and their travesties that they've committed are really kind of representative of all of Israel. Israel as a whole makes light of the things of God. But when they're in need, oh, let's go get the Ark of the Covenant. So they go, they go back to Shiloh, they get some folks, probably some priests or whatever, and of course Hophni and Phinehas, as the priests are involved with this, they bring the Ark of the Covenant back to the battlefield here, expecting that God is going to give them victory, and as the Ark of the Covenant comes, Hophni and Phinehas, who remember, have just, God has just recently pronounced judgment on them, that's a little foreshadowing. The people are so excited in Israel that they yell and they scream and they're all excited that they're going to win the day because now the Ark of the Covenant, they're so loud that the Philistines can hear them probably maybe almost two miles away. They can hear this. And the Philistines, now it's their turn to tremble. Let's look at this. Verse 4, so the people sent to Shiloh that they might bring from thence the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, which dwelleth or is enthroned between the cherubims. Remember we saw that picture of the Ark of the Covenant? God um, explained or presented himself to his people as being dwelling amidst those two cherubims. And the two sons of Eli, the ones that have had judgment pronounced on them, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God, two men who who could care less about God, carrying the Ark of the Covenant. That's not a good mix is it? 
that even tells us things aren't going to go real well, regardless of what Israel says here. And when the Ark of the Covenant, the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted with a great shout so that the earth rang again. Um, and again, they're excited that now they have the one thing, this icon that they think is going to give them victory, but it's their actual lack of respect that they've shown all these years and honor and even a lack of care in the character of the priest that's carrying this that will actually doom them in this scenario. God is going to deal with the issue of lack of honor in the midst of his own people before he's going to deal with the enemy. And he is going to deal with these sons of Eli first before he deals with the enemy. Judge, remember the verse, judgment begins with the house of God. And God will deal with his children when they are disobedient to him and remind them of who they need to depend upon. Not an icon, not an object, but the actual presence of God. And they've forgotten that. God does not need Israel, but they are fully needful of him, and they've forgotten that. And they're ignorant of his sovereign will and about to happen. As they cheer exuberantly for the ark's presence, they have no idea unfortunately, because they're spiritually dull, what's actually going to happen. Well, the Philistines hear this, and they're fearful. <laughs> Isn't it interesting that actually the enemies of Israel are more fearful and in awe of the power of the Ark of the Covenant than even God's own people, really, in this scenario? And they're fearful, and they hear the people shouting, and that makes them nervous. And then they have intelligence that comes in and says, uh-oh, guys, that, that ark thing that the Israelites always carry around, they've brought that with them. It's the presence of their God. And then the Philistines are terrified because even though Israel hasn't done that good of a job in their recent history of being a testimony of the one true God, wasn't that one of Israel's responsibilities to be a proper testimony of Yahweh, of their God? They really hadn't done a very good job of that. But there was still enough of a testimony that the Philistines had still heard of this God of Israel, and they were scared, even though their information we'll see here in verse 8 is not, they're kind of confused in the identity of Israel's God. And their response here is very interesting to this. So look at verse 6. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, what meaneth the noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews? And they understood that the ark of the Lord was coming to the camp. And the Philistines were afraid, says the idea of trembling in their boots. They're scared. And they said, God, or really the idea here is a God. They don't know the one true God. But they say, a God has come into the camp. And they say, woe unto us, for there hath not been such a thing heretofore. Verse 8, woe unto us, who shall deliver us out of the hand or the power of these mighty gods? They're confused. They think that Israel worships more than one God. Is it, You kind of get the idea here that Israel has not done a very good job of being a witness of their God. But even with servants that are rebellious and less than they ought to be, God can still use that to give testimony. And these Philistines know enough that they're shaken by the possibility of his presence. 
And then they're really kind of off on their history here, right? What do they say? These are the gods that smote the Egyptians. Well, that's part, that part is true. With all the plagues, that part is true. In the wilderness. Well, okay, they're a little confused there. <laughs> but honestly, Israel hasn't done that great of a job. Who was the, who was the uh, judge that was with the Philistines the most? Samson. I have a feeling Samson wasn't that keen on representing and explaining all the detailed, accurate facts about God, unfortunately. But the Philistines still know enough. They're scared. You get that idea here. They say, woe is us, at least twice. But now listen to their response. A lot of times when, when Israel's enemies are in this situation, they turn and run the other way. But these men are so panicked. They do something, they do the opposite. They say, we're in a fight for our lives. This, this God of the Israelites is going to end us in our way of life forever. So men, be strong, be men, and let's go into this and fight for our lives. Now, really, in the end, who is in charge of all that? Who, who, whose sovereign hand is leading that these men just didn't run? This is God. God is working even in these enemies' lives. Be strong then, verse 9, and quit yourselves like men. Be manly. Be a man. Don't run from these guys. Our very nation and our existence is in peril, O ye Philistines, that ye be not servants unto the Hebrews. We don't want to be slaves to them forever, as they have been to you. We want to be the ones that are still powerful all over them. So quit yourselves like men. Fight like men. Be a man. And of course, that's always a good war cry for soldiers that are ready for battle. You know, be a man, don't, don't be a coward. And so they go out and they fight. And Israel's ready for the fight because they have the Ark of the Covenant. And here is the surprise, verse 10. And the Philistines fought. And really, God is fighting at this point on the side of the Philistines, if you think about it. And Israel was smitten. And they fled every man into his tent. And there was a very great slaughter. For there fell of Israel 30,000 footmen. And the ark of, the God, of God was taken, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were slain. It is a staggering loss of life and loss of their cultural icons as well. They lose the ark of the covenant. They lose their priests. And as an extra thing here, from what we can tell from the narrative, although it really doesn't go into much detail, we never hear much about Shiloh ever again. And most scholars think that after this, the Philistines continued and ransacked Shiloh and destroyed the um, building, the temple of worship, whatever was there. You never hear about Samuel going to Shiloh again. He, um, he's off in Ramah after this. And so most likely they go and they ransack Shiloh and the temple is destroyed and they lose much because... They made the things of God light. They didn't take God seriously. And folks, sometimes God may have to really get after us today, his own children, if we make light of things that he says need to be serious. There's one practical application of this. We need to take seriously worship of God, obedience to God, because God says it's weighty. It's, it's important. And Israel made light of their responsibilities before God 
and God had to deal with them in a very dramatic and devastating way because of their sin. Well, unfortunately, the story continues, and it only gets worse. And there ran a man of Benjamin out of the army and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes rent and torn and with earth or dirt upon his head. This is a soldier, a soldier from the tribe of Benjamite who returns the 20 miles back to Shiloh with this awful news, and his t- clothes are torn, and there's dirt all over him. And these are Jewish expressions of grief and mourning. And at the same time, as he's running back, Eli is waiting, verse 13, and when he came or arrived, lo, Eli sat upon a seat by the wayside or by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. Here's Eli, and even more than his sons, he's concerned about what's going to happen to the ark of the covenant, because he is the high priest is responsible for the ark of the covenant. And it does seem just as Israel kind of treated a icon or an object more important than God's presence, so with Eli here too. He's not been concerned all these years for how his sons have acted in front of God, but he is concerned for that ark, that that ark stays pristine and that stays within their hands. Even more than concerned for his own son, he's concerned about the ark. And so in the midst of him waiting and this Benjamite soldier messenger coming back, somehow the soldier misses Eli, whether Eli just, the Bible says that he's blind and he can't see much at all. And the soldier goes past Eli somehow right into the city and lets the whole city know. And the whole city of Shiloh is in a tumult of despair. And it's so loud that it comes to Eli's ears. And he says to himself, what is this that a this here, this despairing sound, this cry of loss and concern in Shiloh. And it seems like that the elders of the city somehow brought this man then to Eli. And this man gives Eli this awful news. Let's continue to read here. Eli, verse 13, sat by the road watching. His heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told it, all the city cried out, they're in great despair. And when Eli heard the noise of the outcry, he said, What meaneth the noise of this tumult or this uproar? And the man came in hastily and was and told Eli. Now Eli was this 98 years old, and his eyes were dim that he could not see. And the man said unto Eli, I am he that came out of the army or the battle, and I fled this very day, today out of the battle. And Eli said, What is there done, or how did it go, my son? What happened? Of course, he's on pins and needles just waiting. He knows in his heart, I think, that something didn't go right, that something is terribly wrong. And now, in a very dramatic way, this messenger gives him in stages what happened. Verse 17, and the messenger answered and said, first of all, Israel is fled before the Philistines. What does that mean? means, um, that uh, Israel has lost and has fled before the enemy. That's bad news. But what does he say next? And thy two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. Oh, whoops, I missed a part here. Before that, and there hath been also a great slaughter or defeat among the people. There's been a huge, heavy casualties involved, a huge number of casualties. Now that's even worse. And then, Eli, your two sons are dead. 
for a man of 98 years old, that in and of itself would be enough to shock him and cause something to happen to his health. But then on top of that, the worst news of all, the Ark has been captured. The worst thing that Eli was concerned about that never wanted to happen. And all of this together in a way on Eli, he starts in shock, falls off this priestly chair, and instantly his neck is broken. And with his death, that signifies the end of that priestly line. As God said, his influence, the influence of his children would never be the same again. High price to pay for not taking God seriously. And folks, we need to make sure that we're to, we take God seriously in our lives. But God has dealt with the people who made honoring themselves heavily a priority in honoring him a light matter. So let's read this. Um, the messenger, or verse 18 and it came to pass when he made mention of the ark of God that he fell from the seat backward by the side of the gate and his neck break and he died. And he was an old man and heavy and he had judged Israel 40 years. And I think there's a symbolism in here. Again, like I just said, those Eli and his sons and Israel who made light of their responsibility before God and didn't honor him in a right way. God had to deal with them. One final thing to kind of um, finish out this whole negative narrative despondency. Verse 19, and his daughter-in-law, Phineas's wife, who was with child, that's the wife of one of um, Eli's sons, was near to be delivered. She's about ready to give birth with their child. And when she heard the tidings or the news that the Ark of the Covenant was taken, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed herself and gave birth. Here this has all the description of a premature labor caused by distressing news. Awful. And her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the woman that stood by, there's ladies attending to her, helping her, said unto her, this is kind of strange, fear not, for thou hast borne a son. This young woman's about ready to give birth and about ready to die. Why would she be so positive? Because in normal situations, one of the greatest blessings that a woman could have in this Midwestern culture was to bear a son. This should have been a time of rejoicing. But because of God's correction in the sin of Israel, it's a time of disaster and despair. And she answered not. Neither did she regard it or as, as the idea of pay attention. She's distracted. She's weak. And she named the child Ichabod, strange name, strange meaning, saying the glory is departed from Israel. In her despair and dying breaths, she names her son, the glory of the Lord has departed. And that's kind of like the overarching final statement of the period of the judges. God's people made light of his things that were important to him. And this is what happens, the glory of the Lord had departed from Israel. She said this because the ark of God was taken and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God is taken or captured. God's people were more concerned with icons and relics than obedience to the God that those icons pointed to. Folks, can that happen to us today? 
we get so involved in the different details of church worship and things that we actually forget to focus on the God who we're supposed to be worshiping in the first place. We get tied up with so many responsibilities and, and things that are important, but there's so many things even in our service to God that become more important than actually serving him and worshiping him. And when we do that, it becomes sin. Now, don't you worry. The Ark of the Covenant's taken by the enemy, but the Ark of the Covenant with God's presence, God can take care of himself. God's going to do just fine. We're going to see next week. God's going to next show Israel's enemies that they need to give him glory too. But what a hard lesson for God's people to learn. It never had to happen. This last story about this woman giving birth could have been a glorious story if they would have followed God. A beautiful moment. And instead, it's a final moment of despair and darkness because they rejected God. Let that be a warning to us tonight. To be careful to make sure that we are making important the things that God wants us to make important. Thank <clears throat>